Blog Talk Radio. You know I can be found. Sit home all alone. If you can't come around, at least please tell the phone. Don't be cruel. Too hard, it's true. Baby, if I made a man Something I might have said Please don't forget my past The future looks bright ahead Don't be cruel To who heart is true I don't want no other love Baby, it's just you I'm picking up Stop hanging up me Don't make me feel this way Come on over here and love me You know what I want to say Don't be cruel To who heart is true Why should we be apart I really love you baby Cross my heart Let's walk up to the preacher and let's say I do Then you'll know you'll have me And I know that I'll have you Don't be cruel To who heart is true I don't want no other love Oh baby, it's just you I'm picking up Don't be cruel To who heart is true Don't be cruel Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, 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 yes. It's only Tuesday night, but that's okay. Yes, we normally start on Wednesday night, but I could not wait to get this gentleman back on the show after the show blew up last Wednesday night when we had a storm come through here and it knocked out the internet, knocked out the phones, knocked out my electricity, turned off my husband's oxygen. I mean, it was a big cluster. But that being said, we are now here tonight, and that was the king, the one and only, the king. And there's two reasons for that song. One, my guest tonight can relate to that song because it it is part of of his story in his life and in his book and two it's an honor of my my mom who I just recently lost because as a gift one year my children's father and I gave her and my dad tickets to go see Elvis in Atlanta and she never forgot that they were hard to get how we got them I don't remember but they were excellent seats and instead of my husband and I using them, we sent my mother and my father. And I'll never regret that because she had the time of her life. So with that being said, I want to welcome each and every one of you to the show tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, this show just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And, and I am so grateful because this hour that I have, four nights a week, this week five nights a week, is like my time away. It is it is the time that I, I regenerate myself from being a caregiver. And any of you that have been a 24-7 caregiver, you understand what I'm saying. You have to have that time away. You have to regenerate your batteries because it, it can wear on you mentally, emotionally, physically. 
And so thank you all for continuing to support this show, for continuing to to share it with others and offer to be on the show and, and become sponsors for the show. And there's two ways you can do that. One, come on the show as a guest. Or two, you can run an ad on the show and I'll run it for 30 days. And I don't, I don't expect to get rich. I don't want to get rich. But you will get heard. If I have to cancel a show like we had to redo from last week, the, the ad goes with the show. So you don't lose anything. The way to do that is contact me at offthechainradio at yahoo.com. And I'll tell you how to do both things. Get on the show as well as become a sponsor. And with that being said, I want to, again, welcome Diane Moe, who has been such a loyal, loyal sponsor. And thank you, Australia, because y'all are keeping her number one in Australia with her Sam Holden series. Sam Holden, our favorite vigilante, is back. The third book in the series has just been released. In Dogbone, Sam's quest to avenge abused animals is threatened when the FBI on the other. Will her double life be exposed? Will Sam be able to protect the animals, her friends, and herself? Check out Dog Bones by Diane Moat everywhere ebooks are sold. And now if you haven't started the series yet, ladies and gentlemen, begin be sure to begin with Dog Gone again by Diane Moat on Amazon. The Instant Conspiracy by J. Traveler Pilton is available on Amazon as a paperback or an ebook. It starts a few years after rebooting the Oberlins left off. Noel and Violent Oberlin spent their adult careers working special assignments for the U.S. government, which was a family tradition of service. After 40 years of espionage, all they wanted was a peaceful retirement in the country. And just as it seemed that thing might happen, an unplanned series of events forced their overachieving adult children to return home to live with the folks and two of the siblings still at home. All four of them driven out of their homes by different aspects of a government that had gone quite insane. Kai, a genetist, was his wife, Gabriel, a bomb expert, turned nurse with their little grandson, Gabe, Jasmine, a forensic scientist, psychiatrist married to Scott, a CPA, joined Micah, an autistic savant, and Serena, an artist, in uncovering a secretive group of people led by the Ice Lady whose main goal appears to be to take the Earth's population down from 7 billion to 500 million within the next 10 years. Having infiltrated the governments of most developed countries and released an airborne anti-fertility virus, the Brotherhood succeeded in forcing a zero fertility rate. In the meantime, the economy of the U.S. tanked. The government sells all of its citizens who have debt into slavery within a system so harsh that civil disorder breaks out. Serenity Retreat Center is forced to become a slave labor camp, and the family is compelled to save the center, their tribe, the United States, and humanity from extinction. And if you thought retirement was simply about money, that book will change your mind. Looking for a listen? Adopt, don't shop for your next audio book favorite. The Adopt an Audiobook program has new releases and audiobooks for every genre. All audiobooks are free to interested reviewers. That's the key. You have to review these books. Simply listen and share your thoughts. Audiobookwormpromotions.com forward slash adopt an audiobook. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get down to our show. 
My guest tonight, bless his heart, he is such a trooper. When the power went out last week, he said, if I don't know what happened, I said, well, God's got a sense of humor. So we settled. I told him, I said, Paul, I can't wait six months. you got to come back on. So he agreed. He graciously agreed in his busy schedule to come back tonight. Author and speaker Paul Thaler is a professor at Adelphi University and New York University. He is a former journalist and the author of the critically acclaimed The Spectacle, Media, and the Making of the O.J. Simpson Story, and The Watchful Eye, American Justice in the Age of the Television Trial. Bronxland is his debut novel, published by Black Opal Books. In addition to his writing, Paul has also been an on-air media commentator for numerous television cable news programs and documentaries, including those on CNN and HBO. Paul, thank you so, so much for coming back tonight. Oh, my, my pleasure, Yvonne. Great to be with you and your listeners tonight. Well, I have to tell you before we ever get started, I almost wished I lived in your part of the country because I would come to your classes. <laughs> well, uh, you'd be most invited, and if you're ever up by uh, this neck of the woods, <laughs> please stop by. Well, I, you know, you would be, when I was in college, the most fun I had was with the, my professors. I hated high school. Because I had very few teachers I enjoyed. I, I literally despised grammar school because it was boring. But when I got to college in my 50s, my professors were the most interesting, the most informative, and they taught me so much simply because they loved what they did. And I know that you love what you do. Well, coincidentally, today, in fact, it was the first day of classes over at Adelphi University, and I certainly hope my students feel uh, toward me and the class as you felt toward your classes and your professors. So today is the first day of the new year in terms of academia. Uh, hopefully it will be an interesting journey for my students. I'm certainly looking forward to that. Well, when you go in there tomorrow, please tell them that you know somebody that is so envious of each and every one of them sitting in your class right now, because I know that you would teach me so much in such a way that I couldn't soak it up fast enough. Well, the nice thing about teaching is the fact that, you know, teachers learn from their students. And, um, and you know, it is a cliche to say, you know, there's that relationship going on, but I, I must say, uh, that my students uh, have 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 been educators in their own right, and uh, I over the over the many years that I've taught, um, I've I've really picked up a lot about not who they are as people, but you know how they navigate the world and uh, and what uh, and you know what uh, their environment is meant to them, and and that includes books they've read and authors they love and and, and the world that I'm a part of when I'm not in the classroom. Have you found that since we're on the topics of 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 the, the the younger generation and the books they read and the things they soak up, have you found the dynamic of what they read different as opposed to when we were that age? I mean, you and I talked the last time about Point Noise Complaint and Dennis LaHaye, Shutter Island, and Roy Bradbury. Yeah. What are, what's the young people reading now? 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, there are books that are, are still part of, you know, the academic world that are required of them. Uh, but then they find their own way, you know, in terms of, you know, modern-day writers that, that appeal to them. I think some of the challenges actually have to do with, with the, the media that we have. It's, you know, writing and reading, for that matter, require long patience. The idea that you have to sit down with a book and lose yourself in the pages, you know, our, our social media and other, you know, uh, Internet capabilities challenge that to to young people, you know, to get information in short bites of information, short bits. And yet there are those students who have found the old medium of, of the book and um, and they, they enjoy it. And they have their own diverse, you know, pantheon of books um, that, they, that they look at. You know, they're obviously popular writers that we all know about. And then there's some 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 students who who actually get back into the classics, you know. We'll take a look at you know the important writers that uh, we we all talk about, it, you know, in in our schooling, and um, it's it's a pleasure to see because they're going through their own growth process, their own sense of discovery, and some of that discovery is coming through um, through the books they read, through the authors that that really have made an impression. There's no, still nothing better than a young person coming up and said, you know, I just read this great book. That that really is kind of music to my ears. And, um, and haven't we all been there? Certainly your listeners, given the fact that they're your audience here, they know exactly what that is all about. The idea of losing yourself in words which is, is a remarkable thing, the idea that these words create images in our minds and we find the place there of comfort, of enjoyment, of humor, of adventure. It's, it's wonderful. And it's, and it's why writers write. If they could create that magic for their audience, they are truly magicians. They, they are truly, it's truly a wonderful Enterprise, and that's why I think and I'll talk from I'll speak for myself. You know, that's why I wrote Bronxland, because um, you know when I gave up the book, when I finally finally gave up the book to my publisher, I really regretted it to some degree because I, I invested so much time with my characters. I, as the author, I was lost in their <laughs> world. I know it sounds a little odd. I've no, created those characters, and yet I find there were friends. There were there were all sorts of folks that I either wanted to hang out with or didn't want to hang out with, but they were real. And um, and you know, part of me misses them every now and then. So I, I turn back to the book to visit every now and then. And I truly understand what you're saying because when I get to the end of, of one of the books that I'm writing is is I know as I'm trying to close the story down, it it's like letting go of one of my children or letting go of a favorite skirt or a favorite dress or a favorite friend that has left me because you you want to let it go because you've got to have conclusion. Every story has to have a conclusion. But on the other hand, once that story reaches that conclusion, it's shutting a door to open another door, and you're kind of lost there for a – it's like a vortex for a period of time. 
you want to get started on a new book, but the voices aren't talking yet. And the, the voices that you just shut the door on are still knocking on the door wanting out. Yeah, it's absolutely true. There is that separation um, <laughs> uh, ecology going on very much like sending maybe your kid off to college or simply, uh, you know, uh, an old flame who, who just kind of disappears from your life, whatever the analogy is. But there is there is that vacuum. There is that time when you actually have to make a transition yourself, where you have yeah. to move on. And the thing about writing, I, I tell you, is the fact that after a book is done, I know my my feeling is I want to write another one. It it really energizes you as a, as, a, as an author, and you realize you're not finished yet. There's another story to tell. So um, it's it's an interesting psychology. The whole writing process is, and uh, you know, you point to it yourself, Yvonne. You know, this notion of Letting go, but you, we have to let go because there has to be a conclusion, and then we have to move on. And if we don't let it go and move on, then we become frustrated with ourselves, and we tend to lose the ability to practice our craft. That's correct. That's right. Yeah, we, You can't go on to something else until you resolved you know, what you're already working on. And um, I, I, am, I, I am, though, I have to say, amazed at writers who are so prolific because I know the, the agony <laughs> writers go through that I've gone through, you know, uh, in, in, in producing a book at times, the writing blocks, searching for the right word to convey a thought, you know, there was a writer by the name of Red Smith who was a newspaper writer. He once said that writing to him was like squeezing blood from a vein drop by drop. He was a perfectionist. He, he wanted to get the words right. And that sometimes carries over into my writing as well. And yet we have to bleed a little bit to go through that process. I think every writer does. But those writers that can produce books after books after books, I am amazed how much uh, they uh, how much they do, how much they write, and how much they suffer <laughs> in terms <laughs> and, and, of their craft. So and, and when you say suffer, it, it we do suffer, ladies and gentlemen, because it, it when, when the words flow, when they're really flowing, and we're writing, and then we get interrupted. To me, that is a cardinal sin. The phone rings, or somebody knocks on the door or somebody needs something, it's like, can you people, there's so much going on in my head, just leave me alone a while. But people that don't understand the arts don't understand that tunnel vision that we have. And once it's gone, to get that conversation back is an impossibility. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you just a very short anecdote. You know, uh, Jonathan Frizan, or Frizan, uh, who wrote The Corrections, uh, a well-known author, he was interviewed uh, by the New York Times, and he said something that always stuck with me, an interesting comment. When he was writing The Corrections, that novel, uh, he said that he locked himself in his room, he wore earmuffs, and he wore a blindfold because wow. he didn't want any sort of sensory distractions as he was writing this book the only sense that was 
in the sense of live was the tactile sense because he had to you know type out on his computer the book itself. He he could not operate in an environment where there were any other sorts of distractions. Now I have to say I have not gone that far. I don't have earmuffs or uh, or blindfolds when I write, but I understand this notion mm-hmm. of kind of you know getting into the moment of the book and getting lost into the moment of writing. You know we talk about readers losing themselves in the book. Writers have to go through a similar process. That's true, they do. Now, I can get lost in a book. Are you still with me, Paul? Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, we, okay. We all, I, I, we all can, right? Those are the books that stay with us, right? And, correct. Uh, they're memorable. And and when when I get lost in the book and then I finish the book, I'm, I'm really disappointed. Not in the book, but because that journey's over. Yeah, well, the, the the very good thing about books is that, you know, there's the next adventure, there's the next story. Uh, that's why we often follow writers, you know. Uh, you mentioned Dennis Lehane as, as a wonderful mm-hmm. crime writer. He's, he's written a whole series of wonderful books in terms of, you know, the psychology of crime, in terms of Mystic River. You, you've mentioned Shutter Island, and there are others that, he, that he's written. Um, so... I follow his work. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of historical fiction, and Bernard Cornwell takes us takes me back to old England, and he takes us through this fantastic history over the course of a number of books. He's written many, many books, which uh, you know fall into that genre of historical fiction, where you actually feel you're back in time. And so, you know, there are authors that just ring true to us, whether it's our imagination whether it's our sense of adventure, and uh, and we follow those writers. And even when a story doesn't work, that's okay to me because uh, sometimes it, it, you know, the story doesn't quite fulfill your expectations because your expectations are so high. Still, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly willing to let an author uh, fail if that's what, is going on on a story. It's the the effort is just uh, incredible what what writers go through. Well, my mother, um, I, I was struggling in college in in my last year because I was in a an English lit class, and the the professor gave us a book that had been written in the 1920s. It was a female writer, and I'm struggling with this book. And mother said, Yvonne, this is what you need to do. Open your mind. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I'm reading a book on how to read a book. She said, I always thought I knew how to read a book. She said, but I'm reading this book on how to read a book. And in a whole chapter on how to read a book, talked about when you read a book, open your mind. Don't go into the book with any preconceived ideas. So I went back and I I took my mother's sage wisdom, which I'm going to miss dearly, and I started reading the book over with an open mind, without any preconceived notions of how I wanted the book to run. Hmm. Well, when I finished the book, I had to do a report on the book, and I had to give my input about the book and why why I thought the character 
did what she did and and the 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 um the nuances of it well in my criminal justice class i also had to do a report on women's suicides which is how the character died in this 1920s book i took one report put it in both classes and made A's on both of them. Because I I changed my whole dynamic of reading that book and opening my mind. And I think we cheat ourselves, Paul, when we don't, whether it's a book, whether it's a newspaper, whether it's a periodical, whether it's even sitting in a college classroom, we have to open our minds. You know, I mean, I think that's the beauty. Well, it's the beauty of art, period, and books being part of that idea that there are different layers to a creation, to a human creation. And so there is, you know, the general text of a book, the story of a text. And then, you know, if you have that open mind that you're, you're talking about, you, you, you start to discover the nuances of, of a character, of a plot, of, of a story, and if you're fortunate enough to to kind of be in a classroom where a book is discussed, uh, and maybe there are other revelations from other students, from the professor, you know, here is another way of opening your mind, essentially, mm-hmm. to new interpretations of that book. And so, what started out as really a story that could could certainly be read on on that level becomes a, a much deeper experience. And those are the books we remember because we're not just remembering a storyline. We're just we're, we're identifying with characters and and their travails and 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 everything else that goes into the human experience. And books can do that in ways that are just very significant. And um, you know, it's again, it's I think what drives writers to write. Sometimes even, if I might say. Writers discover new meaning to books that they have written. You know, it's, an, it's a curious type of psychology that, you know, I've uh, reread Bronx Land a couple of times, frankly. I actually see things in the book that I didn't realize were happening when I was writing the book. I see yeah. this psychological web that was formed between characters and storylines. I said, yeah, somehow. It got into the book. Whatever thoughts were in my mind somehow got onto the pages, even when I wasn't aware of it. So it's a, it's a fascinating psychology. I hope that makes some sense to you and your listeners, but um, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I can relate to that because I just had the Mad Hatter narrated into an audiobook that is a historical fiction set in England in 1888 and as i'm listening to the the audio that my narrator sends me i'm i'm hearing it through different ears and a different nuance and i'm looking at my girlfriend i'm going i wrote this this is good <laughs> So I get, I understand exactly what you're talking about. That it, it, 
because we can separate ourselves from being the writer and just enjoy being in the moment of reading it and we're not critiquing it. We're just following the characters. Yeah. And audiobooks are kind of an interesting phenomenon. In fact, they're certainly catching on, to say the least, uh, because, you know, when we read a book, we imagine the voice of our protagonist, of, of the folks that are in that book. And if you have an especially good narrator in an audio book, that, that voice could actually you know, obviously come alive. It is alive. Yes. It's actually yes. coming from a person. And that could give it another dimension in terms of, of hearing the book. Because when we, when we read a book, we're also hearing the book, even if it's in our mind's eye, our mind's ear, that we're, we're, we're seeing the characters, we're, we're listening to them. And now an audio book, you know, is, is kind of interesting the way it engages the senses. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that they've, it, those audio books have really caught on because they're very engaging and they're also just, they're fun. They're fun to kind of plug in when you go for a drive, when you're on the road, and here, here is storytelling. And we all love storytelling, you know. We teach our children when they're very young about the world through stories, mm-hmm. and that only grows as we grow as, as human beings into adolescents and adults. You know, we are, you know, we're storytellers and we're story listeners, and uh, they're very important. And I can't, we're going to take a break, ladies and gentlemen. My my wonderful guest tonight, author and speaker Paul Saylor and I are discussing the beauty of books and his book Bronx Land we will return because we're going to talk about Bronx Land and why he wrote it how he wrote it what happened when he wrote it what caused him to write it and we're also time permitting I want to delve into the other two books that he wrote so we will be right back Horses See Ghosts a new poetry book by Gannat Wise it's been called poetry for the rest of us Amazon. Do you have cougars on your porch swing? Are horses your new best friend? Do your nicest shoes get buried knee-deep in snow as your toes turn blue? Are you bothered by wolves at your woodpile? No, not that kind of wolf. Join wildlife artist and author Nancy Quinn and her family as they discover an exciting new life in Go West, Young Woman, a true Montana adventure, available online and in bookstores, or visit quinnwildlifeart.com for a personalized signed copy. Critics agree, it's a hoot. A struggling city, its beloved baseball team, an antique camera, and photos from that camera that bear an image from the pit of hell, an entity only a select few can see. Journalism professor Buddy Cullen is determined to track this demon down. But who is the hunter and who is the prey? And who will be the next target of mankind's mortal foe? Mortal Foe, available at Amazon.com. Hi, this is Winona and Jade inviting you to join us and our wonderful guests on the And I Thought Women's Cave podcast on Blog Talk Radio to learn more about our books 
the And I Saw It series, and The Misfit Guide. They're available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNobles.com. Or just to see what your ladies are up to, you can find all of that out on www.AndWeThought.com. So peace and love from Winona and Jade and our books. <laughs> you so silly. silly. You silly. Remember Did you write that? That's funny. <laughs> Remember to visit us at AndWeThought.com. Once in a lifetime does a great author set the stage for a wonderful trip into the minds and lives of their characters. Yvonne Mason doesn't just write books, she crafts memorable experiences. Best-selling true crime fiction author Yvonne Mason will leave you on the edge of your seat and checking behind every corner for the weirdos that only real life can breathe. Find her books on Amazon.com and make sure you check out such titles like Dreamcatcher, Failure Was Never an Option, The Pink Canary, and Silent Scream today. And we are back. This is Off the Chain. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, with one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever had the pleasure and honor of interviewing, author and speaker Paul Thaler. And we have been discussing books in his teaching and Bronx land. And real quick, before we get delve into Bronx land, the, the the critically acclaimed books, I can't talk tonight, The Spectacle, Media and the Making of the O.J. Simpson Story, and The Watchful Eye, American Justice, and the Age of the Television Trial. Those two books are very important for more than one reason. And and to me, it one of the reasons is OJ the O.J. Simpson trial made public trials on television a phenomenon it it set the stage for 24 7 newscasting would you agree with that uh yes uh, entirely uh, in fact um I, I did i i was kind of if i might say at the forefront of uh, investigations having to do with the impact of, of television in a new arena of our social life and that was the courtroom and uh, The Watchful Eye was actually um, an examination of the rise of this new television genre. And so when that book came out, I thought I had written all that I needed to write. And then all of a sudden this sensational trial comes to the fore, and that's, of course, the O.J. Simpson case. And I spent the next three years, essentially, investigating this relationship between television, um, the Simpson trial, and, and, and basically the American public. And uh, that book actually uh, had a, a lot of attention. Uh, if I might say again, I did a lot of media commentary. There were documentaries and the like having to do with not only the trial, but the media uh, impact on that trial, because this was a trial that was supposed to last uh, maybe a month or two and went on to last close to a year, the longest trial to that date in the history of California. And that became such a public event, as we all know, if we lived through that time, that um, it really created, um, you know, uh, a new tension to to 
television's role in the courtroom. And uh, we're still talking about the O.J. Simpson case, right? And that yeah. more has morphed into movies and morphed into other types of media events. But the reason that trial is iconic is because of that year of Simpson in, in which everything was transformed into everything on television was transformed into the television trial. And and would it also be um, right to say that not only did that trial transform television as we know it now, but it also impacted every one of the players that were involved in that trial from the to the prosecutors, to the defense attorneys, to the um, the um, news journalists that covered it. There's there's absolutely no question about that, Yvonne. Uh, there were all sorts of post careers made in the wake of the Simpson trial, for better or worse. I mean, uh, the defense, uh, uh, excuse me, the prosecuting team. This was supposed to be a case that was supposed to be quote a slam dunk case. They actually went on, uh, Marsha Clark, I should say, went on to become an author. Uh, Chris Darden became an author. Actually, they were paid millions of dollars for their books. Actually, one cynical uh, lawyer said, never in the history of jurisprudence have have lawyers who lost a case that was supposed to be won so handily went on to become millionaires as a result of that. Uh, There are other folks you know, who became media personalities uh, as a result of, of that trial. Interestingly enough, the one person who really didn't profit, quite literally profit off Simpson, was Judge Ito in that case. And I interviewed Judge Ito uh, afterwards. And he was really, um, he was actually broken up by uh, the the case itself. And that, we could argue about the verdict, but it was kind of the process that mm-hmm. the, the the sensationalism that was attached to the case and whether, you know, questions whether, in fact, justice was done in that case. So uh, he didn't feel it. W- originally, he started that trial as a civics lesson to to Americans on how a trial should be run. And then he realized that case had been overrun by by all the immediate, immediate tension that was attached to that case. So, I mean, I could go on and on just talking about that, but clearly it was a pivotal moment both in television history as well as in in our notion of the courts. And it it changed the dynamic of of so many things that we can, I don't think we can ever go back. Well, uh, you know, you know, we, we, we see lots of, uh, you know, televised proceedings on, you know, on the tube and, uh, it has become kind of natural. We don't see too many gavel-to-gavel trials. Simpson was actually covered from the very beginning, including pretrial hearings, up until, of course, that famous verdict, when basically the nation stopped when yes. a verdict was reached after about two and a half hours, a case that <laughs> lasted nearly a year, was decided in a blink of an eye. And... Um, you know, it, it created all sorts of reaction in, in this nation, as we know. It was very polar, polarizing, too. It really became a racial verdict, many people thought, uh, and, and the like. Uh, and, and we don't see too many televised trials, uh, you know, that, that go that long, if, if any, frankly. 
but clearly trials, you know, uh, and, and there's certainly, I was actually in the minority, frankly. Uh, many people advocated for more televised television in the courtrooms, believing that we should be able to see what's going on in the courtroom. And without getting into the whole debate about it, uh, it people, uh, you know, critics like myself are divided having to do with this issue. I think that in many cases, and, and I've watched several television trials, and I've been in the courtroom myself, and, and what happens is it ceases to be a a justice trial, and it becomes courtroom TV. Everybody knows their own camera, and whether consciously or unconsciously, they act differently than if they were just in a courtroom in front of the judge, in front of the jury, in front of the witnesses, in front of the defendant, doing what they do. Yeah. Again, no question about it. I, I did. I've done extensive interviewing with witnesses, jury members, the judge. If if you get in deep enough in terms of the questions, you discover that um, everyone is seeing the camera over their shoulder, including jury members, interestingly enough, who are off camera, mm-hmm. uh, understanding that this trial is part of a wider community outside the courtroom. So they are wondering, what is going to be like going back into my community after a, a verdict is rendered? Uh, a, ju- the ju- a judge in the case that I interviewed realized, you know, he his profile wasn't as flattering as he wanted it to be in a newscast that was that was that was on air and he changed his behavior to conform to kind of public perceptions of what a judge should should be doing in a courtroom and there's uh, there are a hundred examples of this type of televised self-consciousness that goes on in these television trials so uh, whether that impacts a verdict in a case well that becomes an interesting question you know, um, would this trial of O.J. Simpson, would this have been a different verdict had it been a two-month trial without cameras in the courtroom? We'll never know the answer to that. But clearly something is different when you put a camera into a courtroom. And, and also getting back to what you said about when the judge found figured out that his profile was not that flattering and he changed his dynamic he also changed the dynamic of everybody else on that stage. Uh, uh, that's absolutely correct. And so we have l- lawyers now having to adjust to a judge. We have witnesses now having to adjust to lawyers who are on stage as well and having to not only try a case within the courtroom, but also in the court of public opinion, understanding that, their their performance, and it is a performance, is being evaluated by what is commonly known as the 13th juror. It's the, yep. it's the public audience who's going to evaluate, and in the Simpson case, it was day-to-day evaluation having to do with how the different participants, uh, you know, acted within the courtroom itself. And, and often those decisions have less to do with legal matters, whether evidence was important, whether, in fact, uh, you know, there, whether even dull, dry uh, testimony is important to a case than having to do with the way that questions were delivered, the impact of the, the physical impact of uh, how a performance is, is in fact, 
are being done. In fact, don't we remember the sound bites coming from Simpson, right? If the yeah. glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. There are there are even lines that become memorable from some of these cases. That is the stuff of our entertainment medium and perhaps should not be the stuff of our courtroom. And would it also be fair to say, Paul, that on that same vein, it also impacts the witness list because they want to get, each side wants to get more and more expert witnesses to denounce the other side, so then it becomes a battle of the expert witnesses. But it's expert witnesses and even pedestrian witnesses they want to kind of keep on, uh, which is why actually Simpson went so long, 11, 12 months of that trial, because the lawyers just kept their interrogations going and going and going. And frankly, Judge Ito did not control that dynamic, uh, fearful that he, he was coming across on television as somehow stifling. You know, a, a prosecutor or a defense attorney's uh, questions. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a very interesting psychological dynamic that was going on in these televised trials, for sure. Oh, I have got to get those two books and read them. I, <laughs> because my, my criminal justice mind just went into hyper overdrive. We could talk about this subject for three hours <laughs> and make just a show out of this. Yeah, no, it was certainly an interesting time, and and uh, I did a lot of talking myself, frankly, uh, uh, back when these books came out. Well, I want to talk about we 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 started off the show talking a little bit about Bronxland, and and we started off last week's show talking about Bronxland, but I want to talk about Bronxland because that is your baby. That that is when people read that book, they will understand. Paul Saylor in a better and a more intimate way. So tell us about Bronxland, the who, the what, the why, the how, the where, and the when of this. Okay, do we have another three hours for the show, right? Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, we. we, There you go. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, actually, Bronxland, very aptly put, is is my baby. I'm very, very proud of it, if I might say. And it is my debut novel, and uh, it didn't start off that way. Interestingly enough, for me at least, it started off as a memoir. Actually, I thought I had a life story to tell about my growing up in the Bronx of the early 1960s. You know, it was also a time of great historical changes. We had a new president, this good-looking guy, John Kennedy. We had a war that was starting to brew. We had the, you know, civil rights movement. We had the rise of the feminist movement. It was a tumultuous time. And I thought I could write a memoir having to do with my early life growing up. And I think I made the mistake of handing... The, and I finished the memoir, and I gave the, mem- the, the transcript, or, I'm sorry, the manuscript, I should say, over to a writing buddy of mine. And he quipped, he said, well, Paul, I think your family will enjoy reading this. And it was his subtle put-down to tell me that I didn't have much of a readership outside of my own family, even if they don't even if they're not particularly interested in how I grew up in the Bronx during this particular time. And that was probably the best thing he could have told me because I took what was a memoir 
and I converted it into a novel so I could use my flight of imagination to take Paul Wolfenthal, who's no longer Paul Thaler, but this fictional alter ego, and and create this dynamic, keeping actually truthful to who I was as a person, I, I, I hope at least, my voice, my personality, my angst, my adolescent angst, uh, comes through in these pages that take Paul through his adventures in Bronxland. And there are adventures there, you know. And yet, yet hopefully he's a very real character. You know, he deals with a, the local bully, you know, who actually was part of my life growing up and, and, and the, what resulted as a, as, as that relationship developed. Uh, you know, the, the adolescent love interests, uh, I have a fictional D.D. O'Hara in my book, and she is kind of a composite of several heartbreaks that I went through as, as an adolescent. Uh, John Kennedy, I mentioned him, uh, was actually very much a hero to me growing up, and uh, he actually becomes a character in the book. Uh, I, I, my, my fictional Paul Wolfenthal meets him at a, at a rally, a political rally, and they have some interaction. And it's worth noting that John Kennedy was, in fact, a Bronx boy. He spent uh, ages 10 through 12 living in the Bronx. He went to uh, a a private school here in in Riverdale, which is the northern section of the Bronx. His house is really a stone's throw from where I live. I actually live in the still in the Bronx, in Riverdale, and his home still stands. It's abandoned, and actually his house itself plays a role in Bronxland itself. So John Kennedy, not too many folks actually know this, spent his early years first in the Bronx, and then he moved to Westchester, which is in a suburb. Of, of New York before he he ruined his accent by moving to Massachusetts uh, and he became the John Kennedy that most of us know but in the book there are actually a series of pictures and two of those photographs have to do with this rally John Kennedy's running for the presidency in 1960 on in the Bronx and the other picture that I'm sure your readers will be interested in seeing is the class photo of John Kennedy when he's all of 10 years of age. And there he is sitting in the middle row of his class picture in his suit and tie, not looking very happy, I guess, looking very stiff. And uh, and there it is. So uh, it's a long way of saying that um, the book, as it turns into fiction, I think becomes much, much more enjoyable for readers. The, the, the readers' responses have actually been quite favorable. And uh, and just an enjoyable ride in terms of being a writer. And is it written through the eyes of this young young boy named Paul? Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. The re- clearly, the book begins with kind of a prologue, where I simply take. I said, "This is the Bronx that I once knew," and I I kind of, from an adult perspective, look back at that time. Then when you get to the first chapter, we're in the voice of this 13-year-old. And every now and then, the adult Paul Thaler kind of peeks in. But for the most part, you're hearing the story through the eyes and 
and mind uh, of this of this kid. And what I think makes it relatable is that I think, and I, I found this among kind of reader reviews, uh, they said it's very relatable because, you know, we all go through that very, very important time of life, that time of adolescence, of growing up, that coming of age. And we all, we all have similar experiences in one fashion or another. So I'm hoping, you know, for readers to pick this up, they, they identify with Paul, if not from where he comes from, but at least his emotional, psychological journey of going through this period of, of time. Oh, I have to get the book. I I have been very slight, but I have to, I got to get all three of your books because I got to bring you back because we have to delve into um, television trials more because we got the Jody Aries thing, we got the the kid down here that killed her kid that got off for murder, and those were all televised trials. Yeah, actually, Florida was very very important. In the history of television trials, not to get too, not to backtrack too much, but the Supreme Court actually ruled against televised trials uh, up until 1978, and it was Florida that conducted a one-year experiment with television trials, and there were some very important cases during that particular uh, time. So cases were televised in 1978, and because there was such a positive response to it television trials were now so-called legalized and in the 1980s almost almost every state started to allow cameras in the courtroom so will you come back and we'll spend the whole hour talking about television trials okay my pleasure <laughs> my pleasure Yvonne but you're not going to believe this Paul but ladies and gentlemen this is what happens with my guests. We never know where we're going. We never know what we're going to talk about. Then we get on these wonderful, wonderful subjects, and the hour starts to run out. So it's yeah. kind of like my, my my hook that I get in them and reel them in and bring them back so they become regulars on the show and get a following. <laughs> well, it is great to connect with your, your audience, and you're such a, a delightful host. Uh, and it really is a conversation, and I, I certainly would welcome speaking to you again on or off the air. It's, it's really been a pleasure. And you've actually motivated me to pick up one of your books uh, because wow. clearly you're a prolific author, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to, to reading, what, reading uh, your work and, and see your imagination at work. Well, I also do true crime. Because that's that is that is where my heart is. Uh-huh. Um, okay. My, my husband is also retired law enforcement, so that is that is where both of our hearts are, and and he has been my biggest supporter and motivator and innovator and idea man. In fact, one of the books, one of the fiction books I wrote, he's the one that gave me the story plotline. There you go, a, a, a real team both husband and wife, as well as co-authors, might I say. So uh, that that's fantastic. Well, tell the folks, before we run out of time, my new friend, and, and don't hang on the show when we get up there, um, but I do want to thank you so, so much for, for taking another hour out of your very busy life and spending it with me. I so appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I have had a blast. And, and if you will come back, I will be even more grateful. But tell the folks where you can be found. 
Well, uh, you know, Amazon is certainly uh, the go-to place, and readers could uh, could see the readers' reviews, what they have to say as well. Uh, if I if I if I might announce on September fifteenth, uh, Black Opal Books is actually coming out with the hardcover edition of of a Bronx Land, which is kind of unusual. Typically, the paperback comes out second, but because of the reception to the paperback. Black Opal Books now is coming out with a hardcover edition, so I'm, I'm very happy to, to see that. Barnes & Noble's online as well, and then Black Opal Books itself, uh, it, the book can be purchased at any one of those uh, online sites. And it's Paul Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R, and the name of, of the book is Bronx Land. And you have to get this book because I want to learn more about this little boy myself. And, and see how he survived the 60s Because I know how I survived the 60s I barely survived them And, and like, we did, didn't we? So yes, that we that did. is the good news We're not giving away the ending of the book But therein lies the ending right there We we survived Drugs and all, you know Drugs, sex, and rock and roll We survived it <laughs> So Ladies and gentlemen, as we get to the end of our show, we will start tomorrow night. Sarah Lynn Richards will be my guest tomorrow night. She is an author. It will be her first time on the show. She is in Paul's writer's group, and she was a little bit anxious. Paul, bless his heart, said, you'll be fine, and she will be. But you all know that at the end of every show that there's things that I say, and, and they're very important things, and I want you to take them to heart. And one of them is, on this journey of life that we're all on, People will forget your name. They will forget what you're wearing. They'll forget what you look like, but they will never, ever, ever forget how you've made them feel. And I can tell you, there have been times when, especially here lately, when I have been in in that rabbit hole and and someone just said something kind. And it, it, it woke me up and said, hey, dummy, get out of the rabbit hole because there is life. There, there is tomorrow there is right now grab it and hold on to it so when you're out and someone looks like they're less than happy with life smile at them say something kind to them because you may save their life and also ladies and gentlemen if you want to achieve greatness please stop asking permission because nobody's going to give it to you you just go out and you do it and you also teach your children how to be great and the content of a man's character is how he does things when no one is watching. Think about that. We can all say that we have great character, but when we do things when no one is watching, that's the content of our character. So remember that, ladies and gentlemen. Join us tomorrow night at 8 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time. Paul, thank you so, so much. This hour has just absolutely, I don't know where it went. It went into that vortex and he, truly, he, truly my pleasure Yvonne and thank you for inviting me back and, and and thank you to your audience for for being listeners to this wonderful show well you are quite welcome my friend and he yes ladies and gentlemen he will come back because what we can do in an hour will be fantastic again so until tomorrow night at 8 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time when we are joined by author Sarah Lynn Richards We want to say, love your children, love yourself, go out and do great things, be great, and know that you, each and every one of you are very, very special. 
Don't feel special. Be special. This is your host, Yvonne Mason. This is Off the Chain, and we will return, Lord willing, and those creeks don't rise, tomorrow night at Eastern at 8 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time. Again, author Paul Thaler. Go check him out. Until then, we say good evening. Okay, we're off the air. So what will happen is once the show archives, I will put it up on my page and I will tag you in it. And then I'm also going to email it to you so that you can put it all over your network. And tomorrow, yeah, and tomorrow it goes up on SoundCloud, Spreaker, iTunes, YouTube, Reverb Nation, um, FM.com, TuneIn Radio, um, iHeartRadio, and several other uh, podcast garden and podcast.com. When I put it up on... That's wonderful, yeah. 200 countries plus and over 200,000 listeners. We're up to 133,000 plus on the show by itself. Wow. Well, you've put so much work into the show. I mean, you you do it almost on a daily basis. It's fantastic. It really is. And, uh, you know, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I I hope it worked well for you on your end. Oh, it did. It got me excited. Thank you for that. You are quite no, thank you. It 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 makes my mind work. And I love it because it, it I get to talk about things that are fun and exciting and new and I learn things. So you taught me as much as is maybe I've taught you some things, but to be able to talk about things that are, are of common interest are like drugs to a druggie, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I also appreciate your heart, you know, and, and your sentiments and, uh, you know, character is destiny. And, uh, you know, I think you point, it, point, out to the, point that out as, as you go with your remarks as well. So I think your, your audience not only gets a good conversation between two folks, but also maybe some life lessons that I think are, are just as important. That is true, and I will send you dates for February, and you tell me if they're good for you because I really do want you to come back. I can't wait to see what you've got coming out the next six months or so. That'll, that'll be wonderful. That's great. And, and, and again, thanks so much. And uh, I'll even uh, jot Sarah Lynn a, a note to relax one more time, and uh, I'm sure you'll have a great conversation with her too. Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt. You'll have to tune in so you can listen in. I'm going to be a listener, absolutely, right now. I, you know, I, I've discovered Off the Chain Radio. I'm, I'm there. Thank you so much, Paul. You are fantastic. And when you go to your class tomorrow and start the second day of your classes, just yeah. as an aside, let your students yeah. know that there's six, the 67-year-old female in sunny Florida that would give her IT to sit in your class and learn from you. Well, uh, from a 69-year-old professor, I will give it. I'll give them that information. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> we will. We will okay. talk later. Thank you for spending that hour with me. Thank you. Take care now. You be well. You too, honey. Bye bye.